0: Hi, I'm James Rudier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For this episode of Bioscience Talks, I was joined by Dr. Dietram Schoefle, who's a professor in science communication at the University of Wisconsin. He joined us to talk about synthetic biology, and in particular, about synthetic biologists' attitudes about scientific ethics and regulation. But we also chatted a lot about scientific communication more generally, which is a topic that I'm sure is near and dear to many of you, as it is to us. Anyway, we covered a lot of ground, so let's get straight to the interview. Uh, Dr. Scheifele, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, before we get into the specifics of your article, I was hoping you could maybe give us a very broad overview of what we mean when we say the term synthetic biology. Uh, what does that encompass? What kinds of things are we talking about? Sure.
1: Um, I think when we're talking about synthetic biology, we're talking about something that's very broad and has really led to a, to a lot of uh, invention since then. But it's, it's really traditionally, when we've done biology, we've looked at the world of organic life, um, in as much detail as we possibly could and try to figure it out. And we did selective breeding, we did all these things. Synthetic biology really says that we're almost doing it from from in the other direction, meaning from the bottom up, that we're trying to use the building blocks. We're trying to detect and identify the building blocks of nature of organic life and are trying to build sometimes new organisms from that. And I think the most the most vivid case of that, of course, was when, when J. Craig Venter in 2010 claimed to have invented or created life in the lab when he inserted synthetic DNA into a live bacterial cell, and, and as many people described it, jump-started life in the lab. So that's, I think, how I would broadly describe the field.
0: And just thinking about that, rather, in terms of you know, new fields or emerging fields, you know, would we expect to see this sort of technology in medicine? For instance, you know, um, editing a genome to remove the likelihood of a future tumor occurrence or something like that?
1: I think this is where we're really talking about new fields that have emerged since then and, and, and CRISPR, this new editing technique uh, that allows us to edit uh, the genome in, in, in much more efficient, much safer, and, and ultimately cheaper ways that was invented both at Berkeley and at, at, at the Broad Institute at MIT and at, at Harvard. That's probably one of the extensions uh, that would apply there more, meaning that we can actually edit the genome, that we can almost search and replace parts of the genome um, and, and so if there's a, a term, if you think about a Word file, almost a Word document uh, that has a typo and every time you write the word and you put AMD instead of AND uh, and CRISPR would go through and find that and take that out. So that was really one of the extensions that, that, that came out of the idea of synthetic biology.
0: And that's obviously going to produce quite a few sort of ethical considerations. You know, what's the broad scope of the you know kind of ethical landscape for synthetic biology? You know, recognizing, of course, that each project and each uh, subfield is going to have its own set of particular issues to deal with.
1: Sure. I mean, I think it's really uh, important to 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 realize that that the motivation for both for synthetic biology, I think, and and, and for applications since then, if that's CRISPR or anything else, uh, or spinoffs. Is are, are really therapeutic. So they're, they're motivations that say, well, we want to we want to tackle diseases that we've just never been able to tackle. Very often, uh, inherited diseases, um, if that hunting if that's Huntington's, if that's uh, Tay Sachs, uh, things that are really potentially debilitating um, influences on the people who have those diseases. Um, but of course, all of these things come with with implications. Um, so, for instance. Uh, these are going to be really expensive technologies, and and we right now in the U.S. certainly are in a, in a scenario where a lot of people don't have money for preventive dental care. Um, so why would those or how would those groups have access to a really expensive technology? So is it going to be a technology that's reserved only for the rich? That's one question, um, the, the question of, of equity and access, um, but also a question of what that, for example, does to our understanding of, for example, disabilities, um, we have a lot of communities and uh, uh, the deaf communities and others who, who, who would argue that, that there is nothing, that this is not a condition that needs fixing, that needs a treatment, but that's actually a large part of their identity. So this idea that, um, that some communities may choose to, to use synthetic biology or CRISPR or new applications to have their diseases um, addressed or, or cured, where others don't, does that will that then lead, for example, to new types of discrimination? Because people are going to ask, "Well, did you not have the money? Why did you choose to not get this, this, this uh, health condition or whatever, whatever uh, one might call it?" Um, addressed. And so I think there are lots of questions about axes, about 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 what it means to to have a disability. Um, there are also questions if it if it, it you know if we are really editing, and this goes back to your initial questions, what is synthetic biology? If we're really building biology from the bottom up, are we actually playing God? Are we creating organic life in a way? And when J. Craig Venter, as I mentioned, said I'm I created life in a lab, um, if you're a deeply religious person, that's going to raise some questions for you in terms, of, in terms of us overstepping potentially moral boundaries. And if you're not a religious person, and I happen to be probably on that end of the spectrum, even then it will raise questions if that's something that human beings should do, that, that you know, we're overstepping potentially um, uh, moral boundaries if they're religious or not. So I think it's something that, 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 uh, where, where the ethics and the morality of it, I think for all of us, raise some questions.
0: And so, you know, and we've probably seen, you know, perhaps even a preview of some of those questions. Um, You know, I I was interested that you brought up the deaf community. The cochlear implants Mm -hmm. issue is actually almost a preview. Obviously, it's a completely different technology, but it it, it raises some of those same questions. And we've seen some of the, you know, the initial argument that can occur as a result.
1: I think that's absolutely true, and I think we're seeing in a lot of the technologies over time raising more and more of those of those issues. Uh, and, and we actually asked in some previous work, uh, we looked at, uh, at at some of the legacy technologies like like nuclear energy, right, where we kind of thought about the risks and the benefits, and then also we asked about nanotechnology. So this is one of the where we could make modifications at the molecular level with new types of microscopes, scanning tunnel microscopes. Much more precision in what we could see, actually a precursor to, to synthetic biology. So that was a technology where we could, for the first time, create materials that don't exist in nature. And then synthetic biology. So we asked about all three, um, to which degree those were pushing boundaries, and, and the more, and, and, and really the, the, the surveys that we did among the general population really showed that people saw more and more of that boundary pushing going on. The more these te- these technologies. Um, um, Allowed us to to do things that were maybe um, unnatural or that 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 addressed things that that had been you know just a given for a long long time. So I think your point is really well taken that a lot of these things the needle registered a little bit for previous technologies, but it's it's really registering more and more and more now.
0: Okay. And so, you know, that's among the general population. In this study in particular, though, you were looking at researchers, um, mm-hmm. both those who have written about, you know, the, the ethics and legal aspects and those who do synthetic biology themselves. Yep. Um, what's the motivation for looking at those groups rather than, you know, say the general public?
1: Yeah. So, and, and that's a really good question. And it, it's, a, in, in many ways, I, w- I would say there, there are two things that are, that are important. First of all, I think most of us in the academic community, in the scholarly community, of course, realize that we are the public or part of the public for most issues. We're experts for a very narrow slice and we're, we're consumers of science um, in, in most disciplines that are not our own. Um, let's say if we go, most of us go to a, to a doctor to help us if we, if we are sick or, or, or if we need surgery, that's not an area of expertise, even if we're scientists. So we rely on the, on the expertise of others very much like other members of the public do. But number two is we've been doing this, this work for a while, looking at, at experts, not just um, people who work in a particular field, but really going in and, and looking at the people who are the most highly published, most highly cited uh, people in a particular field. And why is that important? Because, of course, some of these technologies, I think, and we saw this for nanotechnology, we saw this for, for others, we see a growing awareness among the scientific community that, that their, their inventions don't just raise technical questions about the, the scientific risks or benefits, but, of course, have larger societal implications. And historically, that's, that's again, not new at all. We, we saw nuclear physicists and chemists write letters to the American president uh, before and during World War II, urging the creation of the Manhattan Project, uh, and then write letters again afterwards, urging to not drop the nuclear bomb. So we've had for a long time scientists really getting involved in the larger ethical social questions. Um, and I think for synthetic biology, of course, it, it, it really was a, a topic where we wanted to know to which degree is there this broader awareness, this debate, and what what do scientists think about these 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 uh, these applications? I, and, and I think one of the really um, prominent examples that uh, that that many of us have seen in in, in news media is Jennifer Doudna, for instance, uh, uh, at, at Berkeley, who has spoken very very publicly about applications of CRISPR and what that might do um, to our idea of being human and what kind of broader societal debates that requires. I think there's some really Visible public spokespeople now in the academic community as well.
0: Yeah, and you know that that brings up something that I often wonder about, um, which is the different role of scientists and outreach in you know the the present era versus uh-huh. say forty or fifty years ago. Uh-huh. You know, forty or fifty years ago, everything was sort of passed through a filter of. You know, um, large media outlets, if it was going uh-huh. to reach the general public. But today, obviously, things are quite different, and scientists are speaking to large groups directly. Um, you know, does that have implications for synthetic biology in particular? Um, you know, is this a different task than it was previously? I think it
1: is. I, I think you know what you're describing is absolutely right, and it's one development, meaning that that uh, we used to have this idea of of, of broadcast media three people sitting there at news desks of, of, of NBC, ABC, reading the news to, to the American public. Uh, and that has changed dramatically, uh, I think, especially in the area of science. Uh, we, we now have um, less than half of, of all the states in the United States actually still have a newspaper with a science section. Uh, so that means a lot of newspapers um, in or a lot of states don't have a single newspaper that has a, a section devoted exclusively to science um we have uh, you know we saw a deterioration over time of, of attention to science and so on and so forth what that means is that scientists themselves and, and former president of the academies, ralph cicerone spoke very powerfully to the scientists themselves need to fill the gap a little bit uh, and of course there are new opportunities to do that to speak to the to speak to the public directly but i would add a second element and alan leshner who was uh, CEO of AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is one of the largest generalist scientist organizations, in, in the early 2000s said something that I thought was very powerful. And he said, we need to have an honest bi-directional dialogue with the public about some of these technologies. And not just about the perils, he said, and not, not, not just about the promises, he said, but also about the perils and the pitfalls. So scientists have to be more and more honest about what these these very disruptive technologies are going to bring, both positively, but also you know, thinking through some of the potential downsides down the road, um, and uh, and you hearing that in the early two thousands or mid two thousands from from within the scientific community, I think was extremely powerful, um, and and really highlighted this need to uh, to have these broader conversations. And I think historically, now uh, you know, in the in the seventies when recombinant DNA came along. Um, We had a Silomar and scientists and a few policymakers getting together and trying to resolve this behind closed doors, the directions of science that science should go into. Um, And then just three years ago or so, two years ago, um, we saw the first global summit in Washington uh, between the Chinese Academy, the U.S. Academy of Sciences, the Royal Society, the German Academy, French Academy, a very public meeting um, to, to discuss the future of human genome editing. And I think that really... Our, our transition from where Asilomar was in a, as a closed door meeting in California to a very public get together internationally uh, of scientists, the public, patients, uh, journalists—I uh, think that really shows how far we've come and how the, 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 the way we communicate with the public in a, in a, in a bi-directional way has, has, has really become the norm rather than the exception.
0: And so is the motivation for um, you know a survey like the one that we're discussing today. To develop a baseline, you know, at the, at, the, at we're at the point of the emergence of this large conversation as the technology itself emerges, mm-hmm. um, is the idea to, to develop a baseline and, and sort of understand the parameters of that conversation?
1: It, it's partly that to understand the baseline and where the scientific community is, and and we have data that parallels that that also show where the public is um so very often it allows us to see where some of the disconnects are right so is for example the public not seeing some of the risks that the that's, that experts might be seeing but it's also something that that i think allows us to gauge a little bit where we are within the scientific community um on 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 questions of of morality which uh, or of questions of 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 us messing with nature and and um, you know, for example, in, in, in our data, we found that, that a vast majority of scientists, regardless if they were in the social sciences um, or if they're in the bench sciences and natural physical sciences, um, thought that that synthetic biology, of course, is morally acceptable. It is something that, that you know, doesn't violate necessarily um, uh, their views of morality. But at the same time, they did acknowledge and, they, you know, yeah, 20 30 40%, uh, depending on which particular disciplinary subgroup we looked at, also thought that, yes, it does mess with nature. It does really make modifications to nature that, that previously we didn't make. So it's, it, it shows also some of the complexity that, that the issue brings with it, uh, regardless of what one's moral views might be. Um, there's still an acknowledgment of what it does um, uh, scientifically.
0: So that sounds like it's painting a very complex picture. Uh, mm-hmm. Just stepping back for a moment, you know, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, sort of the the survey design, who you sure. were speaking to, how many people, um, and and what they thought? Yeah, and and that's a
1: really, I think, an important question um, for 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 surveys of scientists. I think there's a lot of uh, news items around that say, well, this is what scientists think, and very often they're based on on, on really poorly done surveys. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's actually complicated to, to figure out, if you think about it, right, if you wanted to survey all synthetic biologists, how do you do that? Um, and one way of doing that is to first figure out who actually publishes in this field, who does research in this field. Um, and we have various databases for academic publications, um, Web of Science being one of them. Um, So where you can go in and you can look at all the articles that have been written. But of course, it's not just on the term synthetic biology. So we have actually a large search string that looks at different applications instrumentation in that field. Um, So it's multiple pages. And then we go in and, and, and search for all the articles. And then we reorganize the data set in a way that allows us now to look at who are the most cited and the most published people in this field. So we can rank the sample in different ways. Um, and then we, we basically take a, a subsample of that, so the, let's say the top 1,000, just for the sake of, of, um, of an example here, the top 1,000, and then we, we sent them a questionnaire, um, typically in the mail, um, and, and, and of course, all of us who've gotten surveys and have not responded um, we know how that then works, and in survey research, we typically do uh, at least two more follow-ups, which means people get more surveys, they get reminder postcards, and then they get an email follow-up. So we do actually multiple rounds to maximize, because what you want to do is you don't want just want to interview the people who respond quickly, who are most interested in the topic, but you really want to get a pretty good representation of everybody, even the people who are reluctant to maybe answer because they don't want to get into the topic. Uh, it's the same that we do for general public surveys, but it, for, for scientists, of course, it's a, it's a bit more complicated because um, there's no directory, if you will. There's no, there's no single list of all scientists. So developing that and then really carefully contacting, recontacting over time to get as high a response rate as we had, 30%, 40% um, is, uh, is, is, is really important. And that's actually pretty good for expert surveys.
0: Yeah, that seems very good, and it seems important too. Because you know, th- those who are most passionate in one way or another are exactly. probably most likely to ne- immediately respond to a survey. No, that's exactly
1: it, and very often you end up with what's called a bimodal distribution. So this is you know, if you if you plotted the opinions, you get a little a little bubble at both ends, meaning the people are really in favor or really opposed, and that's exactly what you want to, want to avoid. You want to get the general the, the whole distribution of opinions uh, in the academic community.
0: And so, what kind of questions did you ask?
1: Um, so we asked, uh, uh, of course, a whole bunch of demographic questions. Sure. Right. So we want to know, for instance, and, and that's not, uh, you know, uh, that's not trivial. So in the sense, we wanted to know, for example, how early in their career people were. Uh, so and we know from from previous research, for instance, that that younger researchers are much more um, excited about seeking that dialogue with the public and, and 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 engaging than maybe somebody who is in the last years of their career and has grown up in a very different. Um, paradigm, um, a very different time, uh, and used to very different types of communication. So we ask about age, about academic age, meaning how long they've been in the field. We ask about discipline. We ask about gender. Um, we ask about race and those things, of course, to get a, a sense of the overall demographic makeup. Uh, and then we ask, um, basically, questions about the technical risks. So these are questions where we want to know, and, and this is also based on previous research. We know that science, a lot of their attitudes toward a technology is driven. By the expert assessment which is exactly what you would want right you want a scientist to think through what do i think the technical risks and benefits are and then i make a judgment Um, and then of course we also ask things like like ideology because we know and we've known for a long time that as objective as we all are in the academic community um, if i ask you about policy stances my ideology or my partisanship still determines for example my views toward regulation with liberal academics being more likely to support regulations, new regulations, than conservative academics who are less likely to support that, even after controlling out their technical assessment. And then the last group of questions really looked at general attitudes, so, and I mentioned a couple of them earlier. Um, did, did they agree, for example, that symbiosynthetic biology was morally acceptable, that it messes with nature, that it gives humans too much power, that it allows humans to play God. So, so kind of some of the key arguments that 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 have been made, and I, I mentioned the J. Craig Venter uh, example um, earlier. There were some some really beautiful um, magazine covers when he when he uh, when he uh, inserted synthetic DNA into a live bacterial cell of, of him holding a test tube with Frankenstein in the test tube, um, uh, you know, kind of and. and, and Kind of playing to that idea of of, of a human's playing God, are they overstepping moral boundaries?
0: And by and large, I would assume that the uh, synthetic biologists uh, don't think that it's morally unacceptable to to do what they do.
1: Exactly, and we saw that right. both among the bench scientists actually and the social scientists who, who thought that it was definitely morally acceptable to, to do work in that area uh, and then uh, but, but there were some uh, clearly a, a decent percentages or, or significant percentages of both synthetic biologists and, and people who work more in the social and ethical aspects of it who, who also thought that as I said earlier that, that it messes with nature.
0: So, so messing with nature, but by and large acceptably so among the survey respondents
1: exactly and and very little pickup of the argument that that it gives humans necessarily too much power i think there was there were a few more people who are undecided among the ethical and the social science side of things um, or that it allows humans to play God. So again, very little pickup of those arguments in the academic community.
0: Now, I'm kind of interested by that concept because it seems to be something that reappears every time you uh, discuss any emerging technology. People are, you know, worry has has science gone too far? Um, are we playing God? Absolutely. Uh, is is kind of the way it's usually phrased. You know, does that idea have more currency within the general public than it does among scientists?
1: So, ironically, it doesn't necessarily. It, it definitely. It definitely has more currency. So, in a relative sense, uh, to answer your question precisely, um, but it doesn't necessarily have overwhelming currency in the sense that it overrides other other considerations. And, and I think this goes back to you know we were earlier at the very beginning talked about the therapeutic purposes uh, that a lot of these 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 the early applications have have, have pursued. I think that really puts it in a particular context so the idea that 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 we're, we're curing disease with this we're trying to, to do things that that uh, in in a therapeutic sense that we haven't been able to do before so that's not necessarily playing god and i think even for for um, for some of the, for some religious um, communities um, and, and and religious leaders they've they've expressed similar views I think that can be that can change very very quickly once we look into applications that may appear more trivial. Uh, so once we use synthetic biology or even specific tools that have come since then, like CRISPR, um, to to let's say eye color of of, of babies, right? So um, all of a sudden, I think that we would we would see a very different uh, we would see a very different set of applications. In our survey data, we 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 did a survey specifically. Uh, this is now public opinion, so general public on CRISPR applications uh, showed that really that's where people draw the line. So, for example, editing the human germline in, in heritable ways so that the genome is edited in heritable ways uh, for, for enhancement purposes so to make people taller or, or, or change eye color. That's really where, where, the, where public opinion is, is starting to turn and says, no, that, that's something that we're really against.
0: Is there any insight into what synthetic biologists themselves think about that kind of issue, those, those more trivial changes?
1: Yeah, and, and and we don't have um, we didn't ask a lot of questions about about those 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 completely trivial applications uh, for scientists. I would assume that we're we're seeing that among and this is really my educated guess, not based on data. I need to make that clear, but I would assume that, that we would see an even stronger opposition of of, of scientists um, against that. I think there's a line though that that is really important and that's a distinction and we we've heard this so I, I uh, I was part of the, the National Academies of, of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's committee on the on the political and scientific um, uh, implications of human genome editing, and 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 you know some of the the people that we spoke to, I think really make a very clear distinction, and I think it's an important one between basic research and then these applications, right? So some of the some of the basic research will look at will look at applications that may seem trivial or something that the general public may oppose, and I think. If you look, for instance, at some of the work that's being done at the Salk Institute in California on, on human pig um, hybrids and 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 and, and you know, to grow organs, uh, some people in the public and the general public would see that as, as as trivial. But of course, it's an unbelievably important application um, for basic research to understand how we can potentially, at some point, grow organs that are that are you know tailored toward a, per, a person's genome and will not be rejected by the body. So, in, in other words. Um, I think that distinction between basic and applied research is one that 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 is my guess would, would we would pick up in the in, in in surveys of scientists if we asked about how trivial an application or particular area of research might seem to the general public.
0: It sounds like a lot at stake in terms of the you know, the way that the outreach is handled, um, mm-hmm. because if it goes poorly, uh, you wind up with a general public that's potentially wildly opposed to something that would be incredibly beneficial. Sure. Um, and and.
1: I, I totally agree. And I think we've seen that for, for GM crops in many ways, for genetically modified organisms and, 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 and food and, and agriculture. I, I think we've we've handled that as a scientific community and, and, and partly of course also the industry handled that pretty poorly and we're still paying for that. Having said this, I don't think that the purpose of 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 engagement or of these broader debates is is just to prevent public outrage. In fact, I don't don't think that's the purpose. I think a lot of these Uh, technologies raise very legitimate larger questions that we as a society need to answer, right? And I mentioned some earlier, uh, the question of of access and and of who can afford to use these, the question of if it is morally acceptable to, to change the human genome in heritable ways, for instance, if we want to do that as a society, there's no clear scientific answer to that. The, the scientific answer, we only have clear scientific answer to technical questions, meaning is it going to be safe? Are there going to be, what other risks and, 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 and technical risks and benefits going to be? But if we should do it, if society should go down that path, that's really a, a broader political and ethical question. And I think we need to have a broader debate about this. So I, I, I would argue, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's an important important discussion. A lot of it is at stake. Um, if it's handled poorly, it can very much raise totally unfounded concerns that that just scientifically and in any other way don't make any sense and we've seen this for gm crops but at the same time i think it goes way beyond that it's not a matter of managing quote unquote public opinion and instead it's it's really we do need those broader debates and we do need them early on in the development so we can we can really come as a society to a conclusion in which pathways we want to pursue and which ones we may see as too risky
0: okay so th- this next question is a bit of a two-parter then you know I- I'm curious what do you, what went wrong with the GM crop debate mm-hmm. and how would you like to see the synthetic biology conversation unfold on a national and global scale you know um, mm-hmm. what what can be learned and what can be done differently
1: so I, I yeah it is a two-part and it's a complicated one I think a lot yeah, went, went, went wrong not at all a lot went wrong with the GM crops debate I think in, in the in, in part that, that from the very beginning, I think we, we paid very little to the communication attention to the communication aspect of the whole thing. We really saw this as a technical problem and we applied what we in, in science communication often call the knowledge deficit model. And what that says is if people just thought like scientists, if they knew all the facts, then they would come to the same conclusion that we as scientists do, meaning it's safe and we should all eat it right? Um, The problem with it is that 40, 50 years of social science has shown that that's just not true. Um, Meaning, uh, A, people will never think just like scientists, and even if they're highly informed, very often they they interpret that information that, that they have in very different ways. So some of the most informed people on GM crops, for instance, are people who are at extremely opposite ends of attitudes, meaning they're either completely in favor or completely against. Um, so it's just not human nature um, to think like scientists and to use information in the same way. So what we did is we, we, we talked about um, in, 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 you know, about all the facts and that it's, it's, it's what we thought was, you know, the idea that it's 1,600 peer-reviewed studies in there, and they all show that it's, it's just as safe for human consumption as, as traditionally bred crops. And, of course, that's all true. The problem, of course, is that there was a single campaign by Greenpeace Um, that that offered a very simple counter-argument to this. And that counter-argument had nothing to do with information. It had something to do with one word, and that was Franken, Franken frankenfood. And I mentioned earlier the title of J. Craig Venter with with a test tube and Frankenstein in there. Why is that so powerful in terms of communication? Because it ties, simply by saying franken, I tie the issue to a mental shelf or a mental interpretive schema that we all have, right? When we process new information, we put it... Metaphorically, on little shelves in our head, it's kind of, where does it fit and what does it connect to? Um, and Franken says, connected to scientists putting stuff together that doesn't belong together, screwing Frankenstein together. Um, so transgenics and so on and so forth. That stuff gets out of control and gets out of the lab and and, and number two, Frankenstein, and uh, the, the Frankenstein's monster. Um, and then it's difficult to rein it back in, it has unintended consequences, and all of that happens because of scientific hubris, meaning Frankenstein um, as a scientist. So the whole point being, a single word tells me all the reasons why I, sh- why I shouldn't support GMOs, and we've done a very poor job of, of doing the opposite, meaning saying, what is the, what are the value propositions? Why is this important? Um, why is it important to, for us to really invest in new food technologies and more efficient crops? And and we I think, we communicated very well why it's good for industry. I think we've communicated much more poorly why it's good for consumers, uh, and I think that's a large part. That was a large part of the of the of the GM debate. I think the same thing is true for synthetic biology. The same thing will be true for various gene editing technologies, um, unless we can see we can show a value proposition for consumers that says this is and and this is true for every technology, right? I mean, if I if I get appendicitis surgery there is a risk, but I see the value proposition. If I get on a plane, there's a risk, but I'm not going to be in L.A. tomorrow unless I take a plane. So I see the value proposition. Um, uh, Even if I get stitches, um, of course I'm getting stitches. Of course there's a risk, but I don't want that gushing head wound. And I think the same thing is true for for synbio and for any of the applications that come out of it, unless we can really have a broader discussion about the the different benefits and risks and, and, and why the benefits for us as a community and a society at this point in history outweigh the benefits, we're going to have a real problem. And I think that's, and we need to communicate that in ways that resonates with where the audience is not where the scientists are. I think that's kind of where we've, where we've, where we produce disconnects in the past that we've really communicated about the science. This is why it's exciting to us as scientists, but that's not why it's going to be adopted by consumers or in society. Um, It's going to be adopted because it's important to them. The iPhone is not, is not successful because it's scientifically complex and interesting. It's successful because it it, it, it satisfies um, a very particular consumer demand.
0: So the idea here would be to present um, SynBio advancements and technologies in terms of their value proposition to the general public and to resist the framing of, you know, Franken-whatever, or you know, any, any sort of uh, widely used trope about scientists who have overstepped their bounds or something like that.
1: I think that's part of it. And I think also part of it is to actually figure out where the, the concerns and the, and the excitement is among the general public and, and really develop toward uh, products or applications in, in that area first. Uh, I think that's the exciting part about uh, human genome editing with CRISPR, for instance, but there's a very clear therapeutic value proposition for really debil- debilitating diseases like Huntington's or or, or, or sachs or others um, where 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 it's very clear why we would want to address those and, and and what the contributions are I think that's a that's a much easier sell than it ever was for for GM crops for instance
0: so is there anything at this point or you know in the you know in the coming years you um, the synthetic biologists should be doing in terms of their outreach. Should they be sharing information with the general public on Twitter? Should they be uh, reaching out and speaking with reporters every time they have a new finding and 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 you know publish something? Should they also be trying to solicit news articles about the same? Um, you know, I, obviously, um, it's it's challenging to to corral a whole large number of scientists and and get them to agree on things and, and do things. But what what in an ideal sure. world would they be doing? Um, you know, to further this, this discussion and to share information or not share information, but, uh, you know, have this conversation with the general public.
1: Yeah. And, and, and I think there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, and, and one, I would, I would just almost flippantly say is listen. Um, I think one of the things that, that we as scientists very often assume is that, that we know what, what's best for everybody else. And I described this earlier as the knowledge deficit model, right? We're filling those knowledge deficits and then people will think like us. But part of it, especially for it's in bio and, and, and related technologies, is the idea that listening is really core. Who, what are the concerns among the general public? What are some of the concerns among particular communities? We talked about the deaf community um, and, and others. Uh, what is the kind of societal environment within which we're developing these new technologies, and that are potentially being disrupted by these? And that will influence how we're then going to communicate. That's what Alan Lechner meant by this honest bi-directional dialogue. Uh, bidirectional dialogue really does require us for us to listen and to to have these broader conversations. So I think that's number one. But then number two is I think you're absolutely right that uh, a lot of it then is about um, you know using different channels and, and 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 collaborating. And that's partly why we why we looked at the sample that we looked at um, collaborating across different academic disciplines. Synthetic biology is actually similar in in many ways, ironically, to an issue like climate change, which is not just a A technical scientific issue. It's also a political issue. It's a issue that affects sociology, psychology, political science, communication research. So, in other words, I think these are a lot of issues. These are these are all issues that that will involve or will have to involve collaborations that are interdisciplinary. What we at Wisconsin do, for instance, in in, in the Department of Life Sciences Communication, we offer a transcriptable minor for bench scientists in science communication. So, if you get a PhD in genetics, or if you get a PhD in Microbio, uh, you can also get a, a, a PhD minor that will be on your transcript later in science communication by taking a sequence of courses and building some of that expertise that says, well, this is how people think about these technologies. These are some of the ways of communicating. These are some of the political dynamics um, that, that may surround this. So I think we're, we're beginning also to build infrastructures within the academic community to train students in ways um, that, that certainly all of us who are older were not trained to think. And, and I think that's a, that's an exciting development.
0: And, and we'll certainly look forward to seeing more. Um, Dr. Scheifele, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.